This is the word of our God. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back. Even at that time, I will gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. And we thank you with such a serious prophecy, such a joyful ending. Lord, may our hearts be full this morning with this glorious, sweet song of salvation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's that time of year when the pollen gets my throat, I think. God's judgment, as we found it, in two and a half chapters of this prophecy, it's quite serious, isn't it? And even if we, I think, foolishly miss the point and, and ignore chapter two as about unbelievers and not us, chapters one and three, verses one through seven, are plenty to be quite discouraging about the state of the church in our day. We read them... I don't know about you, but I, I read chapter 3, 1 through 7, and it echoes almost exactly what I, what I think of when I view a lot of church leaders in our nation, when I look at the polluted and oppressive and disobedient uh, attitudes of many churches. It can be discouraging to read Zephaniah and can leave our hearts quite heavy. I think because of that, God, the all-knowing God, knowing that the result of the punishments he brings on his people would perhaps leave us thinking we can't celebrate, feeling quite discouraged, gives us our passage today. Even if we just think about the the, uh, immediate application of Zephaniah, That in uh, Zephaniah's day, remember, there's the two stages to the prophecy. There is the immediate judgment God is about to bring through Nebuchadnezzar. 
taking them off to captivity. And then there is the eternal, the day of judgment, which is going to make Nebuchadnezzar look like nothing. And and even if we just look at the smaller thing, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we can reflect with the children of Israel, some of them were taken into captivity with Ezra. They were settled next to the river Kabar and uh, there beside the rivers of Babylon they wept when they remembered Zion and those who led them into captivity would say things to them they said for example sing us one of those praise songs of Jerusalem sing us about your God immortal invisible only wise Sing us something about your mighty fortress now that we've taken it. And they said, we can't sing a praise song here. All all we can do is sing this lament. I think the Christian life can often feel that way. And it's not wrong to sing lament in the Christian life. The majority of the psalms are psalms of lament. Or, or not the majority, but the largest, the largest category of psalms are psalms of lament. It's appropriate for us to cry with those who cry and grieve with those who grieve. Not just appropriate, but we're told we're blessed when we do it. And it's appropriate to grieve over the situation of the world around us. Lament is not a wrong thing. I think it's something we need to develop better in our own hearts and lives. But sometimes it feels like that's all we can do. And God anticipates that through Zephaniah. And he shows us that although all these judgments are coming for us, the remnant, those who have sincere and true faith, Those who aren't only members of the visible church in America today or wherever you are in the world. I'm just, we're in America. But are also members of the invisible church bought by the blood of the Lamb. We we always should find room for praise and song. And that in the darkest days, we still have a sweet sweet song of salvation and it's so sweet even in the darkest days we ought to be able to sing it and tell it to the peoples everywhere that's what our text is telling us and it tells us it so majestically it tells us that this sweet sweet song of salvation is so sweet. It's not only our song. It's God's song. We we don't think about God singing very much. But God sings. And our text tells us so. Our Savior sang during his life, but... He didn't stop when he got to heaven. So let's look at this sweet song of salvation this morning. 
starting by looking at what this text says about our part in the song, and then we'll, we'll look at what our Savior has to sing. So we start with our part in the song, our song, and I believe what is being put before us here is a victory chant. I was praying about that last week, because the other thing I thought of saying is it's a praise song. And, and then I thought, well, really, all of our praise songs and hymns ought to be victory chants. Otherwise, what are we praising? We're praising our Redeemer. Why are we praising Him? Because He's one. Our praise songs and our hymns ought to be victory chants. We also have laments. We also have songs of confession. Right to sing both of those things. But we ought to be singing victory chants. And... I, I think that's a good picture for this because when we feel so weary and tired, what's the one type of, of moment when, when you can still sing enthusiastically when you're exhausted? Isn't it when you've won? As... Uh, at least Shakespeare envisions the Battle of Agincourt. These brutalized, battered, weary soldiers walked off the field singing Hallelujah. The battle belongs to the Lord. They should have been falling down wherever they were and taking a nap. But they were able to sing. When a football team wins a game, I suspect their players are quite tired. But it doesn't stop them from picking up their captain on their shoulders and marching around and cheering. A victory song is something you can do even when you feel very broken. And what we have before us here at the end of a very heavy prophecy Zephaniah for a three-chapter book is very heavy, isn't it? It's a lot like Jeremiah, but shorter. It's heavy. And yet it ends with a victory chant. The people of Israel, Zion, are to cheer and sing. How is their singing described? Shout! Don't mumble along as Jesse or Katrina or Deb plays. But shout to the Lord and sing. That's victory language. And it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be full. That, that is, it calls on us for everything. It's not to be half-hearted. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. All your heart, I shouldn't have to say this, but I, we all need the reminder, don't we? When we sing to the Lord the songs of praise, they are to be enthusiastic. They are to be not only outwardly enthusiastic, but enthusiastic in the heart, which means understanding. 
And I know that I've, I've had moments in my life, hopefully not the majority of the times I sing in worship, but occasionally, every so often, halfway through the hymn or the praise song, I realize I was on autopilot in my brain. And, and I think, if I don't know the song well, I think, oh no, what, what was coming out of my mouth? <laughs> and if I know it well, I, I think, well, thankfully, at least that was autopilot. But, but that's not from the heart, is it? That's just mumbling words. Is that what brings glory to God? No! What brings glory to God is when we're singing from the depths of our heart with knowledge and understanding and expressing that to God and each other. It's the only part of worship we're told to do to each other. Isn't that interesting? We are to sing to the Lord, but Colossians 3 adds singing to one another. But it needs to be from the heart, from the depths of our heart with knowledge. And then it needs to come out. Maybe a different word for enthusiasm would be with some gusto. Is our singing to God, victory chants, enthusiastic like that? That's what our text calls for. Now, why would we sing like this after such a book as Zephaniah? Verse 15, because the Lord has taken away your judgments. Everything he has threatened has been taken away if you are the remnant. And we have a clearer vision of what it means to be the remnant today than Zephaniah was able to express in his day. Because we can say the remnant are those who have faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. If you rest and receive Christ, uh, re- other way around, receive Christ and then rest upon him, not upon your own works, not upon your own goodness, not upon outward forms, as we looked at already in Zephaniah, but if you rest upon him as your only merit, you are the remnant. And as the remnant, all your judgments have been taken away. The imagery is given in part about physical enemies. He's cast out your enemy. But the New Testament, just in case our foolish minds miss it, makes very clear we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Our enemies are sin, death, and hell. And he's had the victory over all of those. Our King Jesus, our King Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. Because, as Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't even possible for death to hold him. What a sentence. Peter doesn't say, well, death almost held him, but he got loose. Boy, that was close. He says, it was never even a possibility. Says the man that, you know, 40 days earlier had thought, Oh, death has him. We have no hope. Later says, oh boy, I was blind. It was never a possibility. 
God wouldn't desert his soul to the grave. And so we can know that he has taken away all the judgments of this book from us by faith. By faith, we know that that is ours. And then verse 17, we are to sing not only because he's taken that away, but because of that, we're to sing with courage. With courage. We have such freedoms, maybe we don't realize what that means for us. We could have these windows, we do have some of these windows open, people could walk by. I don't think the cops are going to hear and pull in and do anything, but Israel's being told, even in their darkest days, they are to sing the victory chant and not be afraid. Have courage. Do not fear. Don't let your hands be weak. Why? Emmanuel. God is in your midst. A lot of nations have gods. God, the mighty one. That, that language of the mighty one, it, it's the same basic language used in another place in the Old Testament of David's mighty men. Remember them? I, I always exaggerate when I paraphrase about the mighty men, but it's not much of an exaggeration. So-and-so ran 40 miles and killed 37 people with a toothpick. That's how it feels, doesn't it, when you read Chronicles? And and he was the twelfth mightiest man of David. (laughs) And you think, you didn't even tell us about three of those guys. What did they do? Zephaniah uses that same language about God. The mighty one. When God is with you, There's no, there's no destruction that will destroy you. No eternal bad thing. When this king says, I am with you. So don't be afraid and don't let your hands be weak. You're about to be taken into Babylon. You're about to be beside the river mourning. But when they ask you to sing a praise song of Zion, make it a good one. Our our singing ought to feel like victory songs. I know I'm beating this point over and over. But I think, I think we need that. We, we ought to sing along with Philip Bliss. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a savior! And it ought to sound like we've won something. 
Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. We ought to sing of His victory over sin, death, and hell with Robert Lowry. Death cannot keep His prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave He arose. That's one of my favorite hymns because it starts off sounding like a lament, doesn't it? And then, and then the enemy gets to hear the praise song. Up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and He lives forever with His saints to reign. With His remnant. That's us! Whatever's going around in our culture, whatever you're enduring day to day, you get to reign forever with the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, who alone is wise, King Jesus. We ought to sing with victory in our hearts of Emmanuel, of the Spirit poured out upon us, indwelling us, The Spirit who ensures our victory because He unites us to Christ. We ought to sing with victory of the eternal security and assurance we have in Christ. We ought to join with those who sing, God Himself is with us. Let us now adore Him. And with awe appear before Him. Him alone, God, we own. Him, our God and Savior, Praise His name forever. Or to join with the sons of Korah. God is our refuge and our strength. Imagine if they'd sung that by the rivers of Babylon. You want to hear a song? It's not Zion. Let us sing about our fortress. God is our refuge and our strength. Our ever-present aid. And therefore, though the earth remove, we will not be afraid. The Lord of hosts is on our side, our safety to secure. The God of Jacob is for us a refuge, strong and sure. Do you sing those things like they are meant to be sung? As victory chants and as praise songs. And, of course, every one of you could have picked your favorite five for me to have quoted here as well. Do we sing Praise to the Lord, because this is a sweet, sweet song of salvation. So sweet. So sweet that it's also God's song that He sings in our text. Isn't that beautiful? Our song is a victory chant, but as we look at the same song coming out of the voice of Almighty God, and specifically as it's sung by King Jesus himself, it's a love song. Look at the second half of verse 17 with me. Here is his song, what it looks like. The king will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He'll rejoice. So good it has to be said twice. He'll rejoice. He'll rejoice. And the second time it's rejoicing specified. He breaks into song. Another place talks to us about God singing. 
over us. Psalm 42 verse 8 talks about a father's lullaby. Well, it doesn't use the word father or lullaby, but that's what it is. There we read that his loving kindness is over us during the day. His steadfast love, his merciful kindness is over us during the day. And at night, his song will be for me. That's language of an adoptive father standing over the beds of, their, of his terrified, weary, sick children and singing them a lullaby to put them at rest. That's a beautiful thought. It's been a hard thought to hold back from our discussions of adoption two, three weeks in a row. But it's such a beautiful thought, isn't it? That God sings lullabies over us so that we can sleep and rest when the world is banging on our door. When the the wind and waves are howling outside, he sings his lullaby over us. Something similar is going on in our passage. But in our passage, the emphasis doesn't seem to be coming from the father singing to the child, but rather of the groom, the lover, singing to his woman. The, the imagery it is, it makes me think of, of a, a wedding. Thankfully, I'm allowed to use that imagery because the Bible uses it so often about Christ, the groom, and his people, the remnant, the church, his bride. And the imagery of verse 17 makes me think of, of that, that groom standing there and around the corner comes the bride. And uh, if the groom's anything like me, sees that moment and inside thinks, wow, how'd I trick her into getting here? Wow, how beautiful. And if it were a musical, he'd break into song. And that's what God does here. The imagery is of Christ looking at his bride, breaking into song. Who cares if there's an audience? Let them hear. He's going to sing. Now, now in, in our experience, at least I assume for the rest of you husbands here, uh, for me, I, I looked at her and thought, wow, so beautiful. And I had nothing to do with it. I, I didn't stay up late the night before altering the dress to make it more pleasing to me. That was an act of love on her part for me. I, I didn't do it. When Christ sings, it's about how beautiful the bride is because he has dressed her. And made her beautiful. But he still sings about her. With joy. Isn't that astonishing? Nothing lovely in us. 
But he sings about how beautiful we are anyway because he will ensure that we are. I like how Ian Duguid writes about this. He says, Having experienced the hiddenness of God's face on, a part, on account of our sins and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus now exults and delights in the fact that we will never have to experience that awful fate. Jesus is thrilled by the results of his saving work. He's thrilled. He doesn't look at us and say, I did all that work for this. I was expecting a little better. He rejoices to the point of song. And now if you if you think about if you think about what is in the middle of those two statements of rejoicing. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And we can keep that same imagery of the wedding and imagine the bride having some cold, cold feet that morning. Thinking, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't deserve him, maybe. After all, it's King Jesus. How could he want me? Full atonement? Can it be? Maybe a few doubts. Maybe some fear. And she comes around that corner. And up ahead at the front of the room is the groom. And he beams at her. And then because it's a musical, he breaks into song about how full his heart is and how beautiful she is to him. And all those cold, the cold feet, all those, those qualms melt away. This is the man for her. And he wants her. Fears dissipated. That's what we're shown here. He will quiet you with his love. With a, with a quiet love? He's going to sing over you. He'll quiet you because only, a, only a, a man who really, really loves you is going to break into song like this. And in song, he's going to list all the reasons he thinks you're great. And first and foremost... I have washed her in my blood. That will melt our fears, won't it? Zephaniah has some really, really heavy things to say, but here at the end, it's, it's joy. Joy unspeakable. And beyond belief, 
that our King Jesus would sing over us with joy. He has given his life for us. Will he not also give us all things? For the joy that was set before our king. Joy. Not duty. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And now he's experiencing that joy as he sings over you. One commentator writes, Our Savior's song completely reorients the way that we are so prone to think about our salvation. We imagine God in heaven forgiving us because he has to. Perhaps because in some fit of sentimentality, he made a rash promise to do so. We think of a father as a, the father as a parent who promised and now is grumpily fulfilling his duty, but wishing he didn't have to. Yet, in reality, the cross and the redeemed people of the cross who are the result of the sufferings are the fruition of the joy-filled plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been pursuing before time began. That's what God's singing tells us. A joy-filled plan that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been pursuing before they spoke, God, He spoke light out of darkness. Well, this should, this should drive us then to confidence in bringing our needs before him, shouldn't it? Uh, if he was a begrudging God, if he was a, a king who married us and then got distant, then perhaps we would be afraid to bring our needs. But since he is the God who sings lullabies over us, the king and husband who who sings celebration about us, what should we not joyfully bring to him in time of need? And, more important to our text here, what should we not bring in our singing? Great joy. Great seriousness. How do you combine those two? Of course, that's the struggle we fight over with church music wars, isn't it? Seriousness and joy. But if you look at the cross and realize that Christ is singing over you in celebration, those two things shouldn't be a problem, should they? To seriously sing of the one who saved you by his blood with joy. Let's pray.